Welcome to the Be Good Podcast, where we explore the application of behavioral economics for good in order to nudge better business and better lives. Hi, and welcome to this uh, episode of Be Good, brought to you by the BVN Unit, a global consultancy specializing in the application of behavioral science for successful behavior change. Every month, we get to speak with a leader in the field of behavioral science in order to get to know more about them, their work, and its application to emerging issues. My name is Eric Singler, founder of the BVN Unit, and with me is my colleague, Scott Young. Hi, Scott. Hi, Eric. Good to see you today. And I'm really excited to join you for this episode. And, and I have the, the honor and pleasure of introducing our guest, uh, Nila Saldana. Nila is an applied behavioral scientist who focuses her work at the intersection of behavior change and poverty alleviation. And she currently consults to several different organizations on these issues and on the application of behavioral science to public health, uh, livelihoods, and education. Uh, Nila also has a really extensive and really interesting background in both the public and private sectors, which I know we'll get to hear more about today. Uh, she was previously the founding director at the Center for Social and Behavior Change at Ashoka University in India, and she's led teams in insights and strategy and marketing um, with leading multinationals such as PepsiCo. So, Neela, welcome. It's really nice to have you join us. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, Eric. I'm delighted to be here. So thanks a lot, uh, Nila. We would like to uh, start, and we are so excited to speak with you. So we would like to start with uh, uh, a bit about your background and uh, your journey. Um, I believe uh, that you have a background in marketing. In fact, I think a PhD in marketing from uh, Wharton. And uh, you have had educational experiences and in private sector roles in India, in the United States. So can you tell us about how you came to be interested in behavioral science from marketing? Yes, it was quite uh, quite the journey. So I, as you said, I started out in marketing. I always loved marketing. I think pretty early on when I went to do my MBA, it's the perfect combination of art and science. Um, so I loved it from day one, went into, uh, didn't know anything about behavioral science, this was way back, went into a marketing job with consumer products companies, which in India, I think, do a fabulous job because you get out of some fancy MBA and then they put you straight on the street uh, to go talk to consumers directly or to go sell products directly. And you're in, you know, 100 degrees weather trying to sell. It really gives you a good appreciation of what it takes, not just you know, having a brilliant idea, but what it takes to execute that idea and get to sales and revenue. So after a few years of doing this, and I had some great experiences in sales, in brand management, and then in marketing strategy consulting with Accenture, I think the turning point was really when I was a consultant and we were consulting with, uh, with a big company in India about their growth strategy. And we were trying to tell them that they should sort of, you know, where their brand should extend to. And the brands that they had played in the natural category. And we were saying, well, you should extend to, you know, other natural categories because that's where your brand strength and positioning is. And the CEO turned on and said, well, what is the meaning of natural? When you say natural, what does that mean? And we had lots of 
you know, examples and anecdotes. And every time we'd have an example, the CEO but what about this one? Is that natural? You know, should we go here? It was really frustrating because I realized we didn't have any good evidence-based answers. They were just anecdotes or, or things that were salient to us. And so I got to reading and I remember, I think it was Paul Rosen's article. He's a psychology professor at the University of Pennsylvania, his article on the meaning of natural. And I said, wow, people actually study these things. So that's how I decided to apply for a PhD in uh, in marketing and marketing because, you know, that's something I had done. Um, and what I didn't realize, I thought I was going in to do like a sort of a PhD on brand management or, you know, brand extensions. Uh, what I did not realize and I'd stumbled into was behavioral science. So a PhD in consumer behavior essentially is a PhD in behavioral science. I mean, I remember being taught about uh, uh, Daniel Kahneman's work uh, and, and there was almost very little discussion actually about you know, revenue and profits and much more about consumers and psychology. So that was my introduction uh, to behavioral science quite by accident, I should say. Did you have any mentors that had a strong influence on you particularly with respect to behavioral science and perhaps maybe a study, an experiment that made a, a strong impression on you in these uh, early days? Yes, you know, um, definitely academic mentors. So my advisor, Patty Williams, uh, she studies emotions and decision making. And that's what I went on to do my PhD in. And I think it was so interesting to me because I'd always thought of emotions as soft stuff, can't be quantified, can't be studied systematically. And uh, it was just amazing to me that you can actually, you know, you can study it, you can operationalize it. Uh, it's not just something that I, I feel whether something is emotional or not. So I would say she was an amazing advisor, really helped me shape my dissertation. I mentioned Paul Rosen, and I think he's always been a great influence because he does these really interesting studies cross-culturally. So he did an interesting study on um, how the French and the Americans view food, um, and in fact, view just life in general, which was very interesting. And the differences in that really brought home to me that there were cultural differences. Um, it wasn't just about, you know, single behavior. Uh, when I graduated and worked with PepsiCo, then I would say it was um, Ravi Dhar and Nathan Novemsky at the Yale Center for Customer Insights. Uh, they We did a lot of work with them. And then later on in my role uh, at Ashoka University. And I think what I learned from that was how to apply cutting edge marketing and behavioral insights to a problem, to a real world problem, what are the limitations? And then I just want to call out, I think, you know, mostly in PepsiCo uh, mentors that I had without whom bosses that I had and colleagues without whom I think I wouldn't have been able to actually do anything with the passion that I had. So uh, my, my boss, Philip Chambers, and then Pam Forbes, Uh, who actually were really interested in this and gave me the space to think about it and encouraged it. Um, and then a colleague of mine, uh, Kurt Frenier, who was the head of beverages, uh, I think, in the Global Beverages Group, um, who really, again, reached out and said, this thing, behavioral sciences, I want to do something. And he wasn't actually either a consumer insights person or a marketing person. So there were, there were colleagues like that. Um, and I think the common thing with all of these sort of mentors has been the space that they've given to sort of think through some of these um, 
you know, some of these questions. Um, in terms of experiments, oh my gosh, so many. I don't think any of us can forget the first time we read the Linda experiment, right? I mean, I, I remember reading it and thinking, till this day, I, I don't think I can still get it right. I still feel there's some catch I'm missing. Uh, so I think that was really, I, I can't forget that. But I also remember um, the the compromise effect, the Simonson work on the choice of attraction and the compromise effect. And the reason it was so powerful, one, it was, you know, in a marketing journal, uh, but also it brought home so starkly that if you strip away everything, just the way you present options makes a huge difference um, and, and a systematic difference. And, you know, now it seems so obvious, but at that point it, it wasn't really so I think that was great. And then uh, the cross-cultural work I mentioned, and then John Hyde's work on moral foundations, uh, just because, again, it was, uh, he was talking sort of, you know, with different, he was using Republicans and Democrats and what their different moral foundations are. Uh, but I thought it was interesting because it seemed to echo some of the values I'd grown up with in India that sometimes I didn't feel re were reflected, the, you know, the, the values around family and community uh, that I felt were quite different uh, than some of those that I was exposed to in America. So that's, yes, lots, lots of different I think, experiments and studies. But, you know, over 20 years, I still remember these. So these must have really stuck in my head. Yeah, I know so many things I could ask you about uh, just flowing from what you've just mentioned. Uh, and I do want to get to your time at PepsiCo in a moment. But one thing you, you raised a few times was the cross-cultural. And I know you you have had some amazing experience. Um, and one thing we tend to say, maybe it's an oversimplification, is that a lot of the core principles or heuristics are very universal. And it doesn't matter who you are, where you are, issues like reciprocity and uh, cognitive dissonance and so forth are, are pretty much universal. But yet the solutions and the interventions that we end up developing um, have to be very, very specific to individual environments uh, and cultures because context is so important. So I was just curious your take on that. You know, does that sound right to you or would you view it in a different way in terms of this whole issue of what's universal and human as opposed to what could work in India but might not work at all in Germany or pick your location? I think I do agree with that to some extent, though the only thing I would say is that, you know, when we say that we're pretty sure this is universal, I'm always shocked by how little we've tested it. And we always say, let's test and learn. You know, we can't tell. And yet we, we make these, these assumptions that they are universal. And I'm like, well, where's the data? Uh, where, where do we actually, even the something as simple as the problems, the Linda problem, the anchoring problem, et cetera. And this was some work we had set up when I was at Ashoka University in partnership with Busara. We hadn't actually tested that in an Indian population. So you don't even know. So I think that's one thing I would say that, you know, where's, where's the data and how do we even know that this is universal? Um, and there's this fabulous article, right, by Joe Hendrick and uh, the weirdest people in the world. And they really pick out what's universal and what's not. So so that's one. Um, and and the, my second, you know, I always feel we say context is really important. Uh, we have an intention action gap ourselves. We say it's important. We want to do it. We don't end up doing it. So. I was shocked to see what proportion of studies in our leading psychology marketing journals, you know, do come from what we call weird environments, right? Western educated, industrialized, rich and democratic. 
Um, and I'd love to see that shifted over the years, but I suspect not. Well, I, I hope it's moving, starting maybe slowly to move in the right direction. <laughs> uh, but, but, you know, I think it could be debated how, how fast it is moving. Um, no, some really great points about, about the data, as, as you mentioned, and then proving some of the, these ideas as opposed to anecdotal. Um, I did want to move on um, to ask you about your time at PepsiCo, because I, I think my understanding is you had a really interesting experience there and that you were a pioneer in introducing behavioral science to the organization. And it was at a time where you know, there were very, very few examples, particularly in the private sector of, of large organizations really adopting behavioral science. So can you tell us a little bit about that experience and, and uh, you know how, how it started and, and perhaps some of the challenges you faced? Sure. So I did not apply to PepsiCo as a behavioral scientist. Actually, I didn't even call myself a behavioral scientist. I just said I had a PhD in marketing. So I still said I was a marketing person. Uh, and I applied for a consumer insights role at, uh, at PepsiCo. And uh, I think a couple of things. First, I was fortunate that I was not in a business role to start with. So I was in a specially created center uh, for foundational understanding. And again, I think that gave, gave the space to sort of bring in some of these interesting new concepts into the organization without worrying about immediately the applicability of it to revenue and profits. So I started there. And in terms of how I got behavioral science into the organization, so I have to say I did, I was, I systematically went after PepsiCo as an organization after doing my PhD. I did not go into tenure track academia because um, I wanted to work in the industry. And I thought to myself, I should go join a really good marketing firm because if there's any incremental value over what I've learned in the last six years, that would be the way to prove it. Um, you know, have I just been wasting my time and marketers knew this already or can I add something new to the conversation? So yeah, I literally made a list of what I thought were the, were the really great marketing firms. Pepsi was one of them. I joined PepsiCo. And so, um, you know, it really started just evangelizing. So I can't tell you how many presentations and discussions I had. I think to the point people were sick of me. Every time they saw me, they'd be like, there's that behavior science person. At that time, we used to call it behavioral economics. You know, here's that behavioral economics person. Um, and it's really about, you know, getting that brand around behavioral economics and accessibility. Uh, but I very soon realized that uh, what would happen was that there was a lot of excitement, but it wouldn't translate into something to do. And so I remember meeting with um, with the leader and I was telling her very excitedly about this work. And she says, uh, but is it in the budget and the planning cycle and which department are you looking at? And I was thinking, oh, my God, I haven't even thought about this. I was so unrealistic. Uh, I didn't even understand how the organization actually works. And I was trying to come in with my fancy new tool and thinking that, you know, Pepsi should suddenly change everything that it's doing and discard and adopt behavior science. So that was a really good lesson to actually, you know, spend half your time or at least most of your time just understanding how the organization functions and where are the opportunities before you sort of jump in with your shiny, exciting thing to do. The second thing I think was after a few years of doing this, um, and, and and that's the point I want to make, it did take some time. So it took about five years from the time I entered the organization uh, to get even a project and a, a sort of a center going. Um, it, it did take that time. 
Um, but I realized that without a proof of concept, it's really hard. So it's not enough to make a presentation and have people say, uh, oh, wow, that's really interesting. And then say, well, why don't you think about how to apply it and get back to me? You really have to show them an example in the company of how you've applied it. Uh, and that was challenging. So I had to figure out who would do that. Uh, where would I reach out to them? And we did one with the food services team in which we showed how, you know, choice architecture, there was a, a bunch of healthy vending machines that were going to be introduced shortly. So we, we did a lot of work around choice architecture. We actually did mock-ups of those vending machines. So I think that was the second sort of turning point, just having that. It wasn't the biggest project in the company. It wasn't even on anyone's radar, but it was just a great sort of little example to pull out whenever people said, yes, but how do you apply it? Um, and I think the third big turning point came when a colleague of mine, um, and so I'd done all this and I was like, well, you know, I don't know where we are getting to. I don't see a lot of traction. And then I just got a call out of the blue one day with a colleague saying, uh, and he was the colleague I mentioned in the global beverages group. We have this problem. Do you think that, uh, and I have to do something soon. Do you think that we could do something? Okay. I have the budget. I have the time. I have the resources, but I need something quickly. Um, that's what I think the preparation really helps because I was able to say, yes, this is what I would do, ABC, let's get to work, let's get started. So I think that um, sort of a couple of those things, which is you have to, pro you have to understand the systems, uh, provide some proof of concept and really be prepared for when the opportunity strikes. And then I do want to say, I called out mentors. I think um, trying to do it without a senior leader in the organization who is excited about it is almost a waste of time. It's just not going to happen. Uh, you'll just be, you know, in, in middle management trying to do a few things here and there. So I have to say that without the help of my bosses and actually their fervent uh, evangelization of this, I don't think it would have got a lot of traction. Wow. Uh, so much of what you've just said resonates so strongly, you know, with our experience, because we're often um, more as an outside, you know, a consultancy, but essentially a similar challenge where there's a lot of excitement. But then how do you translate that excitement into projects? I do want to say one more thing. It's a pretty lonely journey if you're a behavioral scientist in an organization. People don't really understand what you're doing. Sometimes they think it's too academic. Uh, you know, how does it fit in? You're trying to tell people you could do things better. Sometimes it's like you should not be doing what you're doing, which doesn't resonate well with people. Uh, it's really helpful to have a community. So I think it was Marketing Science Institute that called a bunch of us from different companies together for a couple of days. And I still remember how. So I met colleagues from PNG and I think from Capital One who were all trying to, uh, you know, get behavioral science in their organizations. And I can't tell you how inspiring and supportive it was to actually feel that, okay, I'm not alone in this journey. So I think it's really important to have that community of peers and, and, other com and a network that you can uh, be in touch with. Can you speak to a moment, because I, 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 for a moment about that, because I think some listeners uh, would probably be really interested to hear about what communities you're aware of that might be helpful for them. Are there, are there ones that come to mind? 
So I think the one that comes to mind is Action Design Network. I think they've become quite big now. They're in various cities. They organize a lot of activities. I think that might be something interesting. Uh, different countries have their own networks. I know India has a, a BE network. Uh, but I think the one that is the largest that I know of is Action Design. And then if you're in an organization, I think reaching out through Marketing Science Institute or any of these might be a good idea because they often have these kinds of networks uh, in place, especially if it's on their agenda, which I think it is. Mm -hmm. No, great. Thank you for uh, that little diversion, but I think it could be helpful to people. Um, you were speaking a little bit about the, the lonely journey, so to speak, and getting started, um, but you also touched on the idea of uh, instilling behavioral science within organizations and especially large organizations like the PepsiCo's of the world. And I, I was curious with the benefit of your experience now, you know, your feelings on that, you know, what type of model tends to make the most sense in terms of really getting past project A and project B towards something that's more fundamental and instilled and I don't, it's it's interesting. I don't know if there's any single model that works. Sometimes I've seen that, you know, a separate unit works, but then there's always the challenge when you're a separate unit of being out of sight, out of mind. Sometimes you have behavior scientists that are embedded in, you know, the day-to-day -day, uh, or you're training, say, consumer insights or data analytics professionals. In some cases, you know, you, you might see it embedded in the analytics section, but I do think there are some sort of successful principles. One is just to understand what's the uh, line of, uh, I wouldn't say reporting, but the line of collaboration. And the shorter that is to the business, I think the more chance you have of, uh, of it being implemented in some way. And there is a trade-off there. So if you want to do something with the business, it's likely that you will be 5% of what that business wants to do because they have to do a whole lot of other things, supply chain, procurement, and so on. But you could have a lot of impact with your 5% as opposed to doing a purist behavioral science, really interesting project, which might be a consumer insights project, which gets all the folks in insights very excited, but really doesn't translate into, into action. And I've been in both. And I have to say the... The sort of purist, let's just understand, you know, the, the consumer insights professionals are super excited. It was very exciting to do that and very privileged to do that in a company and get the resources. But it also, there's a higher chance that it doesn't really translate into action because the steps between uh, the conclusions of that study and what it takes to translate into action. Okay, what do I do with this? Do I need to make a different chip? Do I need to sell this differently? Do I need, so what is, what do I need to do with it? That's much longer. And then that's where projects tend to fail because um, nobody then wants to think about the, you know, the idea to execution. Whereas if you're directly on a business problem and someone says, well, this is my problem, you might use behavioral science, but you might never say that you're doing behavioral science. You just end up sounding like a smart person. And they say, how do you know so much? And you say, well, you know, it's not me. I studied it. I just don't have that brain that, you know, these things come to me and sort of, uh, like that famous, I think, Moliere, where um, the, the man realizes he has been speaking prose all his life. So it's very much like that, right? You realize you're speaking behavioral science all your life. Um, so I think that's a trade-off. Um, and as behavior scientists, we are very excited with the psychology. We are very excited with the, with the interestingness. Uh, and we don't think as much about the usefulness. 
And we don't think as much that um, it's a total brand manager fallacy. We are so excited with our own brand that we don't think about what other people are thinking about behavioral science or where they might need it. So a little bit of perspective taking is good, I think. Sure. No, thank you. That's really helpful. One other last question I had tied a little to the PepsiCo experience is where do you see the real huge opportunities for some of these large private sector organizations like PepsiCo to apply behavioral science? And do you think there's a particular area where perhaps they're not focusing energy and resources, which might be um, really well suited to a behavioral science lens and, and tools? Now, I'm very excited by the premise of uh, merging behavioral science and analytics in organizations. I think organizations are investing so much in, in analytics and customer base, and yet those are staffed with folks who really know their data, but you know, obviously have not been trained in human psychology. And rather, it seems like a natural home for behavior sciences and sort of market research or consumer insights. And then you have a whole analytics group that actually is, is looking at behavior. They're measuring behavior. It's just that they don't call themselves behavior scientists. They call themselves analytics. So I really think that's a very understudy. It requires, uh, you know, the behavior scientists to get a better understanding of, of analytics and data it requires the data folks to sort of understand where this might fit in. But that could be quite interesting, I think, in terms of reinventing several things, right, from retail to innovation. The second area, I think, which would be really interesting, uh, although we have to think about how to make it work, is innovation, uh, really based on, uh, you know, how, how are people thinking and therefore what are some services or products uh, or ways that you might want to get it there. So there I see, and I was very privileged to be at the design center in PepsiCo. I see an intersection between, of course, data, but also design and design thinking and behavioral science. So those are two sort of areas. I mean, of course, there is advertising and there's retail and the current touch points, but I see sort of this intersection of data and behavior science. And second, this application to innovation that could be quite interesting. Yeah, they, what you mentioned about innovation is a theme I think we've been hearing from several people recently, uh, maybe the larger idea of, to date, it seems as though behavioral science has been applied a lot to uh, fix things that aren't working or optimize, you know, and address problems. And, and I think we're hearing a growing um, point of view that we, it should really be built into design and really built into new products and services and so forth from the beginning. Um, and, and finally, I think customer experience, because it's so malleable. And right now we don't have a, you know, leading companies have this, but, you know, there could be ways. And we know so many things about experience. And we even know about things like experience utility and retrospective utility, right? So there, there's stuff that we can do there, I think, to make the customer experience uh, much better. Uh, Nila, more recently, you have focused your efforts on applying behavioral science to poverty alleviation. And you have been a leader in bringing this work to the global south. So uh, can you speak about the two organizations you have worked with, uh, Ashoka University? Uh, as uh, you mentioned, Scott, uh, you were the founder and director of a center there, and also the Busara Center. Uh, and could you share their, their respective missions? 
Yes. So, you know, I always say never turn your phone off because I think the chance to, uh, I've always, you know, my life is always changed by a phone call. In PepsiCo, as I said, it was the colleague who called me uh, in respect to actually starting the center again. It was one of those phone calls from uh, the then head of the Gates Foundation in India to say we are funding the center uh, at this new university. And, uh, you know, just wanted to get your perspective on it. One thing led to another. And then I agreed to move from New York to India to fund the center. So the center is funded, it is at Ashoka University. Ashoka University itself is a very interesting experiment in education. It's funded um, on, the, on, the, on the point of uh, collective uh, philanthropy. So uh, it's a private university and it was really set up to fill a gap in liberal arts thinking. So it's interesting because all the founders have education, have engineering and management backgrounds and business backgrounds, but they thought the biggest gap was in critical and liberal arts thinking. So that's Ashoka University. And the Center for Social and Behavior Change was, uh, was funded by, as I said, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, with this idea that uh, we are spending so much on, if you take, you know, global health, say vaccination and immunization, so much on supply, we even make it free. And yet we don't still, after so many years, have uh, herd immunity on routine immunizations uh, with many parts of the population. And we don't have immunization completion rates. So this idea that at the end of it, everything comes down to behavior. And uh, there was a lot of work happening, but I think they felt the need for more evidence-based work. And so they uh, very generously funded the center. And I was very um, lucky to have been the founding director of the center. And so really the work that we did was was uh, to low-income um, folks. And it was really around the areas of public health, uh, financial inclusion, how can we get, uh, you know, we know that, for example, there's a huge problem of anemia uh, in, in the country, and it particularly affects um, pregnant women and their children. And there's a lifelong sort of deficit. And it's one of those moments of truth that if you don't set it right now, it's almost like a lifelong issue. Um, there's a very simple solution that works in many cases, which is to take an iron and folic acid supplement every day. So just take that one tablet. Uh, as we all know, when we say something is very simple, it doesn't mean that it's going to happen. So compliance rates are extremely low. I mean, self-reported compliance. This is people saying, I took it, and we know how that is, versus actual is almost like 30%. And this is for something that people know is good, and we've told them for many years how good it is, and it's for your baby. So it's something really important. So what's going on there? So really using behavioral insights to try and... Um, you know, solve problems like this was, that's an example of the kind of work that we really did at the center. So right from understanding what are the behavioral barriers um, to trying to design interventions. And I think the prevailing wisdom is we should communicate this better and, uh, and really trying to, you know, to make the, to make people understand that's not just about communication. It really is about design and it really is about uh, other things than just and, and, and communication about the benefits. So that was really the prevailing wisdom, that in order to get people, we should give them information about the benefits of doing this activity, but really saying that's not where the drop-off happens. That's the sort of work, and it's pretty much one of the first centers um, around behavioral insights in, in India. 
And while I was there, so I reached there and I said, well, I'd love to do this. The kind of stuff I was doing in PepsiCo quickly realized there wasn't really a lot of that happening. Um, so said, you know, I need some help. Who am I going to call on? But I, North America, data rich environments, you know, very different culture. It's, it, it may or may not work. So I literally Googled and found the Busara Center for Behavioral Economics. And I said, wow, they're based in Nairobi in Kenya. And they already had a lab that they had established for about five years. And they were, uh, you know, they were running studies with uh, low income participants. And I said, wow, if there's anyone who knows how to do this, it's probably these guys. So I literally cold called them. And I said, what I want you to do is to help us to set up a similar lab in India. And they came there and we had a really fruitful collaboration uh, where we realized that setting up a quote unquote lab is not a simple matter. So right from figuring out, uh, you know, in the end, we had to hire a bus and outfit it with computers and go out into the villages. Um, and then after I uh, left the center, I also uh, was advising Busara for some time. I think they're very similar to what CSBC is, which is another great organization in the global south, in this case in Africa, uh, also in India now, uh, doing this kind of work around applying behavioral insights to poverty alleviation. Um, and there are not that many of those, you know, for uh, this huge part of the world, there are not that many localized centers that are actually situated there. Most of the time, it's folks from, uh, you know, Europe or the, the US going, flying out to do the work. So I think that's the model that's different both for CSBC and for Busara. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, could you share one or two uh, very specific projects so our listeners uh, understand well what does it mean concretely trying to uh, fight uh, uh, against poverty? So I mentioned the anemia project and the problem was uh, and it's a really interesting project because first of all you know the government was very interested in this it's a widespread problem. The first thing we had to do was to actually break down the behavioral problem to solve because there are a lot of structural issues, there are a lot of contextual, a lot of availability issues, but you know, what can you do behaviorally? And even behaviorally, there are a lot of things you can do. So you can increase nutrition, you can take the pill, you can do many things. So we really had to say, let's start with taking the pill. And I actually think defining the problem is sort of the hardest job because everyone wanted to do everything. Um, and we really had to say, no, let's really focus on taking the um, iron pill. The second thing that we had to do was, you know, to do the research. That I think is something that's more familiar to, to folks in terms of doing the research. So I won't dwell too much on that. Uh, and then from that, we came to, I think about, I want to say about 30 barriers for why women were not taking the pill. Right from they didn't think they were at risk to something as interesting as um, we kept telling them that if they didn't have anemia, their babies would be bigger. And so then they worried then that they would have difficulty actually um, uh, delivering those babies because, you know, they obviously we were not telling them that babies only grow to an optimal size and that they actually had their mothers-in-law who were a very influential part telling them to stop taking the pill in the eighth or ninth month, which is totally against what they should be doing. So right from that to just forgetting, because this is something you have to take every single day for six months of your pregnancy. So we made a list of these barriers, had this, you know, this, this design workshop, and then sort of came down to about 20 ideas that we sort of very quickly prototyped. 
And we did that in the area around Ashoka University, which is a group of villages. We literally went out, spoke to people and said, if we gave you this, what would happen? A lot of the ideas just fell by the wayside because we couldn't implement them or, or people just were like, I don't think this is a great idea. Uh, so we came down to a bunch of about um, five experiments that we actually wanted to test. And the question is, how do you test those experiments? And that's where I mentioned the mobile van. So first we thought we would set up a lab in you know, a village and get people, the regular thing, get participants. But we very quickly realized, and we had to do this offline because there's no digital. So we very quickly realized that because of electricity constraints, that can't really happen and there's no real meeting place. So we tried, you know, with, with Busara, tried many options and finally hit upon the sort of bus that we outfitted with 20 laptops and research assistants. And we said, you know, with all the software, and we said, we'll take it around to the villages. So we had five interventions. Uh, one of those was, you know, just showing them a testimonial of someone who had actually gone through it and had, you know, had had taken the pills and had a healthy baby, right down to something as simple as people didn't know about when to take the pill uh, and how to counter side effects. So we gave them a very simple, show them a very simple card as to when to take it specifically and how to counter side effects. To my favorite intervention is this calendar that we gave them in which they had to peel off uh, every day when they had taken the pill and they would see this nice little baby. So that was a nice sort of reward system. So we tried many of uh, these experiments, five of these experiments. The learning was one experiment, which I really loved, which is that they had to call, they would get a reminder every day to take the pill. And as, to make it engaging for them, they would actually also listen to a one minute like little soap opera. So, it, you know, because people just switch off from it. We couldn't actually make that work. So <laughs> it was such an interesting idea. We tried very hard. So it was a good learning. So, you know, you can't sometimes make some ideas work. Of the remaining uh, of, of the five, two actually worked really well. The card um, that we gave them and the calendar. And this was a small sample. So this is like 200, 300 women. This is the kind of small sample. Uh, it took us about a month to run these experiments, but it took us seven months to lead up to sort of designing and running the experiments, but it took us about a month to do that. Uh, so we got these two interesting ideas. And then the next step was saying, let's do this. Let's actually implement this a pilot in maybe, you know, one district with a much larger population than just the 200. So we kind of see, but not just to implement these. So we tested each idea in um, as it was. This idea was if you put a portfolio of interventions together, does it have you know better traction than a single idea? So that's where we did the pilot and a couple of things worked. We learned a lot uh, as well as how to measure, you know, what are some of the measures you can't keep, uh, you know, you, you if, if you want to see the, uh, prevalence. And uh, from there, we sort of then recommended something to the government. So that was the whole process of to make it very concrete. And a few learnings. One is uh, we started with 20 ideas, like 20 prototyped ideas, not tw we had many 50 like general ideas, 20 prototyped ideas. Uh, that success rate of converting it to experiments is about five to six. We ran, you know, so that's the sort of that's the funnel there. Um, we had an extraordinarily high success rate of 40%, like two of the experiments worked, but I would say that's really not, you know, the way it is. Um, and, uh, and then when we piloted, when we went from the small scale to the pilot, we also realized some things in the system that 
wouldn't allow us to do an idea as well as feasibility. If you're going to print calendars for 1.3 billion people in India, like who's going to print these calendars and send them, right? So, um, so I think at every stage, you learn a lot from how you do this. Okay, thanks a lot. Very concrete and I think uh, very uh, inspiring. Uh, Nila, where do you see the greatest need and opportunity in terms of applying behavioral science in the global south? Um, so I think there's, you know, there's so much to do that I think there's not even, you know, everything ends up becoming a sort of focus. I would obviously, I mean, given my experience in development, say that those are some of the biggest challenges. And I think about simple health behaviors that we take for granted uh, that I think, you know, could we just apply some simple behavior science, track this, make sure that this happens, immunizations, washing hands, taking pills, um, to, to just get it, make it easier for people to do this. So I think that's where you can have sort of what I call the, the low hanging fruit, but it takes a lot of effort to do, uh, to do things like that. Um, I think the other big area is actually, and maybe it's true of the global north as well, is in the big collective action problem. So climate change, for example, is a problem that's going to disproportionately affect people in the global south and specifically poor people and poor farmers. But it's a collective action problem. It's not a problem. And unlike taking a pill every day, it's a much more complicated problem. And it's been really hard to figure out. Uh, how you can use behavioral science in, in big collective problems like that, or how to fight inequality, or in India, you know, caste discrimination. These are big, big societal problems. Is there a role for behavior science in, in these kind of problems? So that's in the development sector. And then I think in the private sector, you know, I would just say there's a proliferation in, in a lot of economies, proliferation of choices uh, for consumers, and how can they navigate some of these choices. And I'll give you an example. So 85% of India's health expenditure is out of pocket. So, you know, obviously insurance systems are building up, but that's so households spend out of pocket. There's a plethora of doctors and, you know, quasi doctors all over and people really don't know. So there's a ton of doctor shopping where you might even go and, you know, visit six doctors How can we equip people with, you know, better, whether it's information, decision aids, make it easier for them to actually get quality health outcomes? Because we're just leaving people on their own to optimize their lives. So I think that's another space where uh, there's probably a lot of uh, scope to do some work. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. That's um, very interesting and very makes a lot of sense uh, in terms of helping people both with information and with decision making and in many cases, simplifying things, not giving them more, which is always uh, usually the, the instinct, which is not necessarily the right one. Um, you spoke about major societal problems and challenges, and uh, I can't resist the opportunity to ask you a bit about COVID. Um, and it's definitely an issue on everyone's mind, but particularly relevant for us because we've been working with the French government on nudging citizens on safe behaviors and vaccination and so forth. Um, so I was curious your, your thoughts about how governments um, and institutions have handled the, the COVID crisis and the role of behavioral science as, as it relates to that. 
Yeah, first of all, can I say I'm so excited that you're doing work with the French government. I mean, we did write an article, Sema Sagaya, who's the co-founder of Sergo Ventures, and I wrote an article in which we said that we thought the Biden government needed behavioral scientists, uh, the COVID-19 task force. So I think, uh, you know, and I know behavior science hasn't always got a good rap, but, you know, maybe we are also to blame for that in terms of uh, the overall pandemic. But it is behavioral. And I think everyone thinks we'll do that. And it seems pretty easy. And it seems like, oh, this is something we don't need specialists for. We definitely need them for the medical parts. But this behavior stuff we can do. But that's not true, right? We've seen that in a number of ways in which, you know, we've made missteps or we've um, sort of done things that maybe, uh, you know, shouldn't have been done. So I do think that having specialist is always a good thing, especially actually the reason that I think it's particularly important in COVID is it's a time of scarcity. It's a pandemic. It's an emergency. I think government is operating under cognitive scarcity and we all know what happens when there's cognitive scarcity. And so I think that's when you actually need some experts to say, not so much to say, do this and do that, but here's what we've learned. And then, of course, you make the decisions. Um, I think there should be more. I know there are attempts sporadically, but I've not seen really any uh, large scale engagements other than I think there was some attempt with the UK government, but not large scale sort of help us to do it, even though we've all recognized this pandemic is behavioral. Um, I think it's going to become even more. From behavioral scientist perspective, I think one of the ways in which they can be helpful is to provide very actionable local data. So I don't know if there's some national campaign that a government can do. And, you know, more and more as I'm I'm getting into this, I realize that uh, our power is really doing the local actionable things. Uh, because anyone can think of the big idea, but it's when that idea translates into state level, county level, segment level that you can be really, um, re- really interested. So, for example, you know, um, one of the organizations I consult with, Sergo Ventures, they have a county-wide Uh, vulnerability and vaccine barriers to vaccination, right? So they have this amazing data in which they show county-wide and they can even do it city-wide, what are the barriers? That's the sort of information behavioral scientists can then take and say, okay, for this particular county, here are the top two barriers and here's what you should do because it's absolutely impossible for a policymaker to try and make sense of that and figure out what to do. They just don't have the time or the bandwidth. So I think that, you know, taking data at a very localized level and providing those localized solutions is where I would see it's not very glamorous work because it's very localized, but I think that's where I would see some of the the big sort of uh, impact. Please, uh, we would love to have your perspective, uh, Nila, regarding the future of behavioral science. Uh, So what is your future is your vision of the future of our field and do you foresee some specific uh, opportunities wow <laughs> so i don't know if you know the the one thing i keep telling people we're so bad at prediction <laughs> i should take my own advice and not predict anything but uh, i do want to point out a few i think and I've, i've mentioned this a little bit so on the one side i see the integration of data and behavioral science is the big one where as behavioral scientists the data tells us where to focus and as behavioral scientists we say how to arrive at the solution 
And so working in those kinds of multidisciplinary teams uh, would be one of those. And I think then it addresses many issues such as, oh, the effect sizes are so small. Is this really practical? Because eventually what we need is a portfolio of interventions. We are never going to solve a problem with a single intervention. Those are very interesting. Uh, but you need almost like 10 to 12 different things that you're doing and you can track them and see that. So I think the better we learned to embrace this sort of portfolio of interventions and work with data science. That's where we can add really a lot of value as behavior science. The other one I would say is, you know, moving out of our psychology comfort zone and getting into other areas. So two of the things I'm really excited in working with folks at, one is around the role of culture and rituals. So Professor Christine Laguerre at the University of Texas at Aust- uh, in Austin, and she looks at the role of rituals and culture. And it's really fascinating work that, you know, we haven't done too much of, uh, which we should be doing. The other piece that I'm excited about is exploring the role of dignity. Uh, We see a lot of this uh, issue and both in the way that we undertake our research, the way that we uh, research with different populations, the way we treat, you know, as well as consumer touch points. Uh, And we've seen that pop up and brands trying to be authentic during, for example, things like Black Lives Matter. So there are lots of issues about dignity. What I'm excited about is like when I was doing my behavior, my PhD, I thought emotions were sort of a soft term. Before I hopped on dignity, I thought, oh, it's nice to have, but it's just one of those things that's like really, you know, you can't measure it. Uh, I'm excited. We're evolving. So I'm working with um, Kate Lamberton at, uh, she's a professor in marketing at the Wharton School, and Tom Wayne, who actually has this Dignity Project. He's an independent researcher uh, and, um, and a PhD student, Sakshi Guy. And we're really looking at this concept of can you measure it? Does it matter? I mean, yes, of course it matters. It's a nice to have, but it ha- does it have Im- impact on outcomes? And what should people do if they want to keep it in mind to operationalize dignity? So, you know, I think we should be, and this is just a sample of things I'm interested in, but I think there are lots of things and we should embrace the sort of um, the edges of behavior science and try and bring in more of these. So on the one side, sort of embrace the data part of our lives and the other side, embrace the less, the more fuzzy and the, the more messy things, um, parts of our sort of behavior science and sort of make it bigger. Exactly. You would think after a year of this, I would be better. No, I I just wanted to thank you for sharing that. I mean, the theme on behavioral and data science and its integration is definitely one I think a lot of, you know, we've been hearing a good deal about and, and makes a lot of intuitive sense. I hadn't heard as much about what you were talking about with, um, culture and beliefs and dignity, which is really an interesting one as well. Um, but seemingly so inherent to actually getting people to, uh, to follow, you know, to, uh, to respond to nudges, right. Is to feel respected and, and feel dignified. And even with data issues of privacy are coming up issues of, you know, monitoring. And so I think these issues are going to become the ethics of doing work. These issues are going to become much more salient, um, now that we've got a lot of the interesting studies sort of get going in behavior in behavior science. And finally, I think also, as, as I didn't mention it, that I do think the application to organizations. We're seeing a lot of interest, a lot of books, a lot of thinking around that. Previously, it used to be you write the book and you hope that it gets applied. I think now we're seeing a lot more thoughtful uh, and I hope that continues uh, learning case studies, you know, what to do, how to do it to actually apply and realizing that just having a great experiment is not enough to actually get change in organizations. 
You no, know, very good point. I, I feel as though there's almost a, you could call it a second generation of, of work and books and things that are coming out now that are, you know, less about the fundamentals, which were done really well 10 years ago, and much more now about the real world issues and applications and challenges um, like the ones you mentioned. Well, I really just wanted to, to wrap things up by thanking you so much. Um, it's been a great conversation. Every time we speak, and I know we've, we've spoken a few times before, I, I feel like we we learn more and, and dive into some amazing issues. So thank you so much. I, I also wanted to give you a chance to leave our listeners with um, any you know any direction in terms of where they can perhaps learn more about um, some of the organizations you've been working with or more about your your work and your interests. Um, yes, you know, I just want to say that when as I was talking, I realized this is still quite this is a young field. I mean, if you think about it, nudge came out just 10 years ago. So I think sometimes we forget that. And uh, so just to tell the listeners that uh, it's still very much self learning. Uh, it's still, you know, don't worry too much if you can't find that there, there aren't that many courses that you could actually take on behavior science. And it's still pretty much sort of cobbling together your own learning. I hope that changes, uh, but not to be afraid to sort of get into it. And that's what I did. I'm an insane Googler. I can Google anything. And that's been like 80 percent of my learning. So if you go to, for example, to the Busara website, the Busara Center for Behavioral Economics, there's a bunch of case studies of them actually applying it or Ideas 42, like all these organizations, BBA, I'm sure you have those. Like I read those and I think that's a great way for me to actually learn like how something happens. What are the concrete things? What do they actually do? What are the results? Um, and I'm still learning replication. Did this thing work? So don't be afraid to sort of, uh, there is no such thing as you're now an expert. I think we are all learning. And so I think we should just be open. Anything that's even tangentially associated with behavior science, I either bookmark it or keep it. Um, even if I just came through the abstract. So I just think that we, we still haven't defined it yet. And so that's the nice part of it. Like go out and explore. I, th I think you and Eric are kindred spirits in that regard, because uh, I know he's constantly searching, reading, sharing, etc. And it is very nice to have people like both of you around who are spreading the word and, and sharing a lot of energy and enthusiasm. Thanks a lot. It was uh, really more than great to have you uh, uh, as our guest for this uh, episode. Maybe, I don't know if you know, because several times you uh, mentioned the cultural dimension, how it, uh, important is it? I don't know if you know this uh, book from Joseph Enrich, The Weirdest People, people in the World. In the world. Yes, oh, yeah. yes. I'm <laughs> exactly. a big fan of, the, of their work. I think it's, you know, they're doing so much here and his collaborators are doing so much of this amazing work and I would yeah, strongly recommend. Thank you. Yeah, and it was really nice to have you highlighting this uh, key uh, dimension. So thanks a lot uh, again, uh, Nila. It was a, a pleasure and an honor. Thank you. My pleasure and my honor. Thank you so much. Be Good, a podcast by the BVA Nudge Unit.